Hey, welcome to Bedside Matters, the podcast that addresses the medical issues that impact each and every one of us every single day. We are hopefully going to give you the answers you're looking for so you can be more informed and healthier. I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper. Hello, David. Hi, Peter. Happy to see you. Anna Vicino. Anna, you good? I'm doing great. Thank you for asking. How are you, sir? I'm I'm doing great, but I, I did two speaking engagements, and I guess that was my limit. <laughs> so my voice is kind of shot. But then, is there a remedy, by the way, David, a quick remedy? Oh, that's a good question. One speaking engagement. That's your limit. Uh, thank, and I thank you for that. Anna? Yes. Today, we're going to be talking about ADD. You know, there's an Adderall shortage, and I know that uh, Dr. Kipper is going to address uh, what's happening now with ADD, how to treat it, <laughs> now that we don't have no Adderall. Um, and weight loss medications for Alzheimer's and Parkinson's? I was kind of surprised to hear this. Yeah, so are the weight loss companies. I'm sure they're going, hallelujah. Oh, yay. Look let's make more money. No kidding. And in, this just happened. It looks like there's a new um, weapon in the arsenal for depression. And then we have a caller who's going to ask about screening for breast cancer, when to do it, because apparently now there's some misunderstandings about that. But I guess we should jump into the first question, which is ADD and the Adderall shortage, as Anna said. Yeah. What's going on here now that we, we still have an Adderall shortage, which you talked about some months ago, still having this issue? What makes this more interesting, and this is a nuance to the conversation we had before about how it's difficult to get Adderall is what we're doing with diagnosing ADD, and particularly in the adult population, for 100 years, actually for 200 years, this was thought to be only a disease in children. And what we now know is that that's not true, that adults have this. And the myth had always been that when kids get this, they outgrow this. Well, they don't. So if you get ADD, you're going to have this for life. And diagnosing it in adults is even harder. But diagnosing this in children is also complicated. Before we get into that, just to review the shortage of the amphetamines that we discussed in the past, there is a shortage. We thought that shortage, this was somewhere, I believe, in the fall last year. We spoke about this, and we were told that we would have the supply chain up and running by the spring. Well, that isn't actually true. It's not really happening yet. We're closer to that, but we're not there. And the reason for this is that these stimulant drugs have at their core amphetamines. There's one company in the United States, Teva, that makes all of these. And Teva, at the end of the year, gives the FDA a wish list of how much amphetamine they need to make the number of stimulant medicines that they project to sell. The problem with that is since the pandemic, there's a lot more need for these stimulant medicines, whether it's needed or not. A lot of people were bored and turned to these stimulant medicines. You can get these medicines online now without really going directly to a doctor. So there, there's a shortage now. So David, I had read or heard that Adderall was flowing a little more freely, although I know people having trouble getting it, but that the generic Adderall is the one that they really can't supply, and that's been a problem. Is that is that accurate? That's accurate. People that were on the brand Adderall that were dependent upon that don't want to take the generic because they don't believe it works as well. And I think there's some truth in that. So there's some cross-pollination between what people are getting and what they want. 
The standard for diagnosing ADD, whether it's children or adults, is not really well established in this country. It's better established in Europe, in England, and particularly in Canada. Those two countries have very well established ADD protocols for diagnosis and treatment. And they also have the amphetamines up there. There's not a a short supply there. Turns out in the UK, the amphetamines are so strictly regulated that by violating any of those regulations, whether you're a prescriber or you are a user, there are prison sentences for this. There are heavy fines that are leveled for this. Like if you're hoarding it or if you're taking it without a prescription or what? All of the above. Wow. All of the above. If you're abusing the access to this in any way. So that becomes a real problem is how do we diagnose this? And it's true also for children. We've spoken in the past about how one way to do this, other than these psychometric tests, which I don't think are great, and they really don't prove someone has ADD. ADD is a behavioral issue, and you you know if you are having trouble focusing. You know if you're a teacher and you've got a kid in your room that's running all over the classroom and not focusing and disrupting everybody. Those are kids that have ADD. It's a dopamine-based problem. Along that spectrum for these dopamine behavioral issues. We see bipolar disorders and schizophrenia. ADD is sort of the entry-level dopamine issue. And one thing that you can do is you can go to your doctor. If it's a kid, you go to your pediatrician. And if it's an adult, you go to their general practitioner, family doctor, and give a trial of one of these medications one day. You give them one pill of a stimulant, give them three things to do, in succession, see how they do. Also see how that child or adult feels, whether they feel more calm, whether they feel more focused. If you are not someone with this dopamine deficiency syndrome, you are going to be the ever-ready bunny. You're going to have that stimulant and you're going to be sort of agitated and hyperactive. Whereas if you have that problem, you're going to be the opposite. So that is a diagnostic that I, I think works. The other problem with the adults is that it can be clinically different in adults. Uh, Adults develop better tools to adapt to these problems. Symptoms in adults uh, with ADD can mimic other illnesses like depression, drug use, thyroid problems, hormonal shifts, insomnia. So it becomes a little more complicated in diagnosing adults. But that's the problem. So we have a problem in diagnosing it, we have a problem in treating it, and we have a problem in access. Can I ask you a dumb question? If they don't have a problem in Canada, why don't we just use their protocols to say, hey guys, can we borrow what, whatever you're doing seems to work? Can we just steal those? That's a great question. Why don't we do that? It is a great question, but also uh, as a corollary, Peter, to that, people are getting their stimulant drugs from Canada. Which is funny because they're more laid back country that they would have the stimulant drugs. Oh yeah. Hey. Hey. So moving on, when I when I heard about this headline, I was like, Ozempic for Parkinson's and Alzheimer's? Are they particularly overweight? But then I realized it was it was an off label treatment that you're that they were talking about, right? Like, is that what it is? Yes. And if you think about this and how these drugs work, it 
it makes perfect sense because neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's have a commonality with the weight loss issues, and that relates to insulin resistance. What is insulin resistance? Insulin resistance is when your cells in your muscles and fat and liver become less responsive to the insulin that's produced when your blood sugar goes up from a meal. And so because it doesn't get taken up as easily into these cells, the sugar accumulates in the system. And this extra sugar uh, creates inflammation, creates oxidative stress, uh, which forms free radicals and causes cell death. Oxidative stress is when things oxidate. And we talk about antioxidants. Antioxidants, glutathione, by the way, is probably the best supplement as an antioxidant. And these these oxidative molecules are destructive, again, through their creation of free radicals. And there's a commonality, as I said, of insulin resistance to these major disorders of diabetes, weight loss, and degenerative neurologic diseases. So how do we treat this? What do we do about this? And standard treatments are exercise, weight loss. But now these GLP-1 drugs, these glucagon-like protein-1 medications, uh, these are the semi-glutides. These are the medicines that we spoke about before with respect to weight loss. They work in three different ways. They stimulate insulin production. They inhibit glucagon production. Glucagon is a storage product in the liver for sugar. You become hypoglycemic for whatever reason. Your liver produces, spits out glucagon, which then liberates sugar into the system. So these drugs inhibit that. Uh, and it also slows insulin absorption, meaning it keeps insulin around a bit, little bit longer uh, by reducing the speed of the, of the stomach emptying. Remember, we talked about how the stomach stays expanded a little bit longer. But also, these GLP-1 medications, these agonists, also reduce amyloid plaques. And these plaques that are formed, uh, they clump together and they tie up these glial cells in the brain, and you can't clear them as easily. And so these neurons that relate to memory and cognition are not working as well. These same GLP agonists uh, can reduce inflammation, and they do this, again, by their effect of, of reversing the insulin resistance. So the, the beauty of this study is that not only are these neurodegenerative disorders that depend on inflammation and high sugar levels as factors now have another avenue for treatment. And all these drug companies now are looking into this. So these drugs are going to be these nuanced GLP-1 agonists are going to be nuanced into that marketplace. But there are probably other chronic diseases like cancer, that we're not even looking at yet. So we're going to see these weight loss drugs in other arenas. I'm, I'm waiting for the commercial that has that has somebody on the beach going, Ozempic, what aren't we for? I mean, it's, it's, it's like <laughs> erectile dysfunction, Ozempic. Depression, Ozempic. But then is it the kind of thing where you have to be on it for the rest of your life? Because or else the 
it'll because like with the weight loss stuff, we were talking about the bounce back. If you right, stop and you don't make yeah. the lifestyle changes, it's you could gain back the weight pretty quickly, right? So you you just answered your own question. If people develop lifestyle behaviors that are healthy, the answer is no. You may be able to avoid these, but. Uh, if you are predisposed to Alzheimer's or you're predisposed to Parkinson's, these are two diseases that if you start early by managing your insulin, your blood sugars, your inflammatory changes, you're way ahead of the curve. We don't know yet how early you start. We don't know what that impact, but we're, we know almost as a guarantee that by starting these behaviors early, you're going to mitigate the onset of these chronic illnesses. But is this eminent, David, or is it way down the road for people? No, I don't think it's way down the road because, again, we've proven how these GLP-1 medications work. We have proven that inflammation and insulin resistance are related to neurodegenerative diseases and, as I said, other illnesses, chronic illnesses. So the drug companies are fast at this. They have the drugs. Now they're just doing these clinical trials on these different neurologic diseases to get them up and running as potential therapies. So I think it's not that far away. All right. Well, in this just happened, we have a new weapon for depression. And I say weapon because it kind of sounds like that. Um, what's going on over there at NYU? They're doing all sorts of research on the brain. NYU did a really interesting study with some phenomenal results. And this all relates to depression and treating depression. And as we've learned since the pandemic, depression is on the rise. It's very difficult to treat. 40% of people that are on these SSRIs don't respond. When you have treatment-resistant depression, you're now running out of options. Besides electroshock therapy, there's really not a lot of things that have shown to have some benefit. And that treatment is not a walk in the park. Uh, so NYU did an interesting study. They were able to correlate the relationship between gamma waves in the brain. Those are the fastest waves, brain waves that we have, and depression. And what they found was that people that had lower gamma waves in a certain part of their body, this would be the olfactory bulb, had more depression. So they were able to trace down the neuropathways from the olfactory bulb, that's where we smell, and it's linked to the amygdala and the limbic system, where our emotions come from, they found that in these people, they had lower levels of gamma waves. So what they did was that they tried to, first of all, they tried to understand why this was happening and how these gamma waves were, were mitigated. And they found that certain diseases, infections, trauma, and certain medications lowered the amount of gamma waves in this part of the brain. And I don't think they've gotten into all the other potential reasons for this. But they also found that by increasing the gamma waves in the olfactory bulb, you improved mood disorders by 40%. This was a huge number. And so they were able to deliver gamma waves into the part of the brain that's in that circuitry for depression. They also found that in these same people, there were lower tryptophan levels in the olfactory bulb. And you can't make serotonin without tryptophan. So mm. that was another clue to how this worked. 
what we found too is that in Alzheimer's brains, they have less gamma waves. And when you increased the amount of gamma waves in these people, they found that you were able to activate the glial cells in the astrocytes, and those were the cells that actually cleared the brain debris. We've talked about this before, that this debris builds up, these proteins, these tau proteins and beta amyloid proteins build up in the brain, but they don't get removed. Increasing gamma waves allows those to be removed a little better and now has a place in treating Alzheimer's. Now, in early trials, not so early, I think they're now in stage two or three clinical trials, those are towards the end, they found that this helped even in people that were already severely affected in their Alzheimer's disease. So this is a potential treatment going forward for Alzheimer's. And depression, obviously. And depression. Amazing. So this is, we may be able to treat depression without depression medication at some point? Possibly, yes. That's a really good point, Peter, because going back to the fact that 40% of people are untreated, even with these SSRIs, we've made this point before that the SSRIs address serotonin-related depression. However, there's a whole half of the world that is driven, their depression is driven by dopamine deficiencies. Mm -hmm. So I think that 40% really relates to either the dopamine deficient people or some treatment resistant people. So this is certainly one more tool in the tool chest to treat depression. But it also helps Alzheimer's. Yes. And it has that secondary effect. It seems like every week now, since Alzheimer's is such a big thing with the aging of the country, that they are working day and night. A, uh, for the good of mankind, but B, whoever breaks the code is going to make a blank load of money. By the way, every time you say gamma waves, I think of the Incredible Hulk. So Lori's with me. Okay, she's nodding. I know that's gamma rays, not gamma waves, but are rays waves? Are we all going to be the Hulk is what I'm wondering. Are we all going to be Lou Ferrigno? No. <laughs> well, to many people, there were different Hulks, okay? There were different Hulks. There's I the Michael apologize. There's Michael Chiklis That's people. Right. There's, there's the Ruffalo the, Hulk. That, well, there's a Ruffalo Hulk people. So just don't, you know what I mean? But what, what they all have in common are gamma waves. Gamma waves. Thank you. And notice the Hulk got angry, but was never depressed. That's right. That's what I was saying. Thank Depression, you. I mean, anger at least is a, is a step up activity-wise, emotionally. It's a step up from depression because at least like you want to do something. You want to get something done. When you're depressed, you can't get anything done. When you look like the Hulk, you're so far past depression. You've got so many other issues. And let me ask a question. Since we're bringing up the Hulk, none of us can go from whatever size pant you are now up 30 sizes and the pant is still on you. Okay? You're naked at that point. It's it's like the werewolves wearing shorts. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. Can I tell you something else? What? Vampire turns into a bat. How are they dressed at the other Where's side? Where's his bow tie? We don't know. How are they? How do they have pants at the other end? They fly off and then boom, they're there with the cape. Doesn't magic trousers. Sense. Thank you. Thank you. Enjoy my magic trousers. This is the medical show. This is a medical show. And I'm going to ask, I'm going to just lead into our caller who has a question about the changes in the mammogram requirements. And I cannot wait to hear the answer on this one. Dr. Kipper, I'm confused about when I should get a mammogram. My doctor recently told me to get mine sometime before age 50, even though I have no family history. Is this correct? Thank you for this question. It's it's timely, it's relevant, and frankly, I think quite interesting because 
one in eight women gets breast cancer, I think those numbers are actually going to go up as we start doing better diagnostics, which is what this is really about. Uh, the United States is now recommending a new strategy for uh, surveillance for breast cancer. And why are we doing that? We're doing that because they believe, those that make those decisions, that there's a greater radiation exposure to people. There are a lot of false positives in these mammograms, which is true. Yeah. People get what's called DCIS, ductal carcinoma in situ. It's a stage zero cancer. We're not sure it's actually a cancer, but there are cancer cells that develop in the milk ducts, and they rarely invade uh, beyond the milk ducts. 20% of them do. But you can see these calcifications on the mammograms. And so from that, a woman gets a biopsy. And the, keep in mind, if you're the woman, how anxious you are during this period. You hear potential breast cancer. You go immediately to a mastectomy and to or radiation or chemo and death. And so there's a lot of psychological trauma in overdiagnosing. The current state of the art for diagnosing breast cancer is the mammogram. The mammogram can miss certain cancers. I go back to the story of Chanel, my wife, which she knows we've spoken about this. Chanel had a family history, very strong family history for breast cancer, and we did MRIs on Chanel, which is another imaging study and can pick up breast cancers that a mammogram can't. On her MRI, she had two breast cancers, uh, one aggressive, one not so aggressive mm. in one breast. And at that point, she was going to elect for the mastectomy and the reconstruction. And when we went to the oncologist, the oncologist said, we well, have to go get a mammogram, <laughs> to which I said, why? You know, we know what the treatment's going to be. There's not going to be any breast tissue left. And uh, what are we going to learn? Anyhow, I shut up and I became the husband and not the doctor. Mm -hmm. She has the mammogram and these tumors don't show up on the mammogram. So the MRI, frankly, saved her life because if we had gone first to a mammogram with one aggressive breast cancer and we waited another year or whatever, that would have been a disaster. So the, the current options now are mammography, ultrasound, and MRI. It had been that the Academy of Gynecologists and Obstetricians had recommended that you do all three as a baseline. And so that if you miss something on this test, you'd have it on another, or if there were calcifications that might have been DCIS, all these three studies together might have saved women from going further into more diagnostics. So that brings us to the new recommendations. And the new recommendations, and again, this is all done in order to reduce the number of breast cancers. The new recommendations are that you should start your screening early at 40 and do mammograms every two years. Now, when you look at the statistics that we've already accumulated, it turns out that if you do these mammograms every two years, you have about a 30% reduction in breast cancer diagnosis. If you do these every year, you have about a 42% reduction in breast cancers. And that's not a small differential. No, it's a big number, yeah. And one makes the argument 
for preventative medicine, I personally feel that uh, the more prevention, the better. Yes, there's radiation exposure, no, no question about it. We're starting now at 40, so there'll be another 10 years of radiation exposure. And does the radiation exposure, does that risk outweigh the benefit of finding a, a cancer? I have a, an opinion that I think the benefit of the imaging outweighs the risk of the radiation inducing a cancer. We're also very careful now uh, in the amount of radiation that we use in these diagnostics. It's different. We're the most strict country in the world as far as regulating radiation exposure. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be, but I think that we sort of err on the side of caution. So as with all other things, I think that we really do need to look at how we're outlining our preventative studies. I think it has more to do with cost than it does with other things. And, and just to reiterate to our listeners where the risk factors are with breast cancer, age, of course, increasing age, race. We know that African-Americans are at a much higher risk for breast cancer, not only for getting breast cancer, but getting more lethal breast cancers. Uh, also at a higher risk for getting dense breasts, and dense breasts are harder to image, especially with a mammogram. You have to go to other imaging devices. Uh, your reproductive patterns, if you had your first child later in life, you're more likely to get a breast cancer. Uh, if your menarc, the beginning of your menstrual cycle started as an earlier young woman, that also increases your risk of getting breast cancer. Uh, body habitus, if you're overweight, if you're obese, alcohol, um, tobacco, obviously are risk factors. They're genetic risk factors, BRCA1, BRCA2. So there are a lot of things that you need to look at in your own history and discuss with your doctor. Am I at risk? Am I at greater risk? And if so, then you might want to uh, negotiate for getting your imaging and your diagnostic studies yearly, not every two years. Can I ask a question about, um, so Chanel did the MRI. Now, here's the thing. I think a lot of women, at least the ones that I speak to and also myself who I speak with on a daily basis, feel that the mammogram is an unpleasant experience. Obviously, breast cancer is a way more unpleasant experience. I'm not trying to minimize anything, but I think that there's the, the factor that, you know, you go and you to get the mammogram and depending on who you get, who, sometimes you get a really lovely person who is very <laughs> gentle and, you know, sweet. And, and then other times you get, you know, the, the frow of the imaging center who's like smashing the boobs down into pancakes. And, the, and my experience has been, they smash it till you wince and then they go, oh, like that's your breaking point. And then they go one more tick. You know what I mean? And you're like, no. So it can be off-putting to go get it because you're like, oh, I'm fine. I'm going to put it off another year. I'm going to put it off another six months or whatever. Are the MRIs less smushy to your boobies? Like, do you lay down in a thing? One time I went and had a massage and she had these two holes in the table. I was like, oh my God, it's amazing. That's like, is the that MRI. What it is? is that the MRI? Okay. That's the MRI. You're, Maybe, you're, there are two holes in the camera and you're yes and so it's i want to do same. that but the mammograms you're you're absolutely right anna this is a huge deterrent by the way try to get a man to get a mammogram uh for every <laughs> oh, hundred women wouldn't do it that get a breast cancer there's one man that'll get right. a breast cancer so that's a 
big sell to try to get the man going and have a mammogram. And I hear you, Doc, because I'm the one who's in 2008 and 2015 had the 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 lump and the biopsy and the lumpectomy and then it was everything was fine. So I'm kind, you know, I have that thing where I know I need to go in. I know I do. It's been a couple of years, and I'm like, and I just keep putting it off. So maybe I need to make a promise here on the podcast that I'm gonna get it done. And by the way. I know this because he came in when I was on the radio station in L.A. <clears throat> I, I didn't know he was a fan, but he came in and talked about it. Shaft, Richard Roundtree, was diagnosed. He had breast cancer? cancer? I guess he did in 93. Underwent a double mastectomy and chemotherapy. Wow. Yeah, the treatments are exactly the same. Also, as a manly man, you don't want to tell someone, well, I have cancer. Well, what kind of cancer do you have? I have breast cancer. So for Richard Roundtree, who shaft to be embarrassed to do it, and he shaft, can you imagine a, a, a normal a normal man? Yeah, that's my point. He's a complicated man, and no one understands him but his woman, Dr. Kipper. He shaft. <laughs> He's shaft. <laughs> wow. Wow. Okay, so to recap... And I'm so sad that we're at the end of another episode. To recap, today we discussed ADD and the uh, Adderall shortage. And the problems with diagnosing, especially adults. And as you said, the shortage of the treatments. And then we talked about the semi-glutides for other applications like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, other stuff. Yes. And how they work, they work very similar to how they work for weight reduction. And then we discussed gamma rays. But in what context, Doc? Gamma waves, not not to be nitpicking. <laughs> gamma waves uh, can be used to treat depression, and thanks to the study at NYU, we have a new tool to treat depression. And then finally, we wrapped it up with a comprehensive discussion of the mammogram and why we need to get one, especially me. Yes, and the new guidelines start at age forty. And every two years for the mammogram and understanding, of course, if you're at high risk, you might want to move that agenda up a little bit and discuss that with your doctor. And by the way, in closing, I want to say Richard Roundtree, I looked it up, he's 80 years old and he was in family reunion in 2019. So nice. you, you go, Richard. Good for him. What Still a, what working. What a wonderful guy. Love it. What a nice, yeah, nice man. Hey, by the way, if you have a question for Dr. Kipper... Go visit us at bedsidematters.org. Send us a message. Leave us a message. We love to hear your voices. And you might just get your question answered by our very own complicated man. No one understands him but his woman, Dr. Kipper. And of course, thank you for listening. If you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, follow us at bedsidematters.org. As Anna said, you got a question, just reach out. And hopefully by next week, my voice will be back. I feel like you're making excuses. (laughs) (laughs) And thank you for understanding. That's why you're not the doctor. (laughs) The information on Bedside Matters should not be understood or construed as medical or health advice. The information on Bedside Matters is not a substitute for medical or health advice from a professional who is aware of the facts and circumstances of your individual situation. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends. We'll see you next time.